would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1, and verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. I used to make fun of some of my preacher friends who they would put the little table up and they'd have the little stool, kind of that, I would call them hipster preachers because they would do the little table and the little stool that was kind of in vogue for a season. You know, there's sometimes on these Sunday mornings when I find myself running back and forth, I, I think I would like to do that. Not because it's cool, but because I'm tired. I just want to sit down somewhere. I want us to continue talking about the making disciples emphasis that we began in last week's message and sort of get the year off on a good, strong footing um, with regards to disciple making. You know, the, the key to most things is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so from time to time, when something is as central as the Great Commission to make disciples, it behooves us to revisit that notion, that command, that concept, that imperative, that directive really from Jesus, and to make sure that we are centered, to make sure that our focus stays where God intends our focus would be, specifically on the making of disciples to the very ends of the earth. Often in conversation about making disciples, which has as, at its core the sharing of the gospel, the work of evangelism, the pushback can be, well, I don't feel adequate in that. I don't have training in that. I don't know how to share the gospel. So I want to address that some this morning. There's always a touch of reluctance in my heart when training in evangelism, doing what we're going to be doing this morning, because training in and of itself implies that you've got to be an expert, that you, you need certain abilities, insights, gifts in order to be able to do this particular work. And nothing could, frankly, be further from the truth. The beauty of what God has done in calling us to be witnesses to the truth of the gospel is that the witness is only responsible for the sharing of what he or she has seen or heard. If you are witnessing to the truth of the gospel, you are only witnessing to your personal experience. Now think about John chapter 9, the man born blind who was healed by Jesus and it caused such a ruckus in the city of Jerusalem. Eventually, in all of the fussing and fighting, they get the man born blind who now sees back before the court. And they ask him, tell us about this experience. Tell us about this event. And there's, there's a great deal of tension. If you're reading John 9, there's this sort of build-up moment where here he's been called to the stand. It's this Perry Mason moment. And he basically says, I was blind. Jesus touched me. Now I see. Deal with it. That's his testimony. And that's all he's responsible for sharing in that particular scenario. And all you're really responsible for ever sharing in your life situation is what you are aware of, what you have experienced by the power of the gospel. That's your responsibility. But that is not to say we can't go further in understanding the testimony of the word and how it buttresses and strengthens our personal testimony as to what God has done in our lives personally. So I want to give you some tools this morning that you can make application of in your efforts at sharing the gospel with others. And I want to do this from the book of Romans. We're going to begin in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and then sort of take a, a very quick pass over the book of Romans and glean from this great book a few verses that aid us in communicating the message of the gospel to those we share of. Now, the typical perception of the book of Romans and the usual approach to the book of Romans is to treat the book 
as this systematic theology set within the context of the New Testament. And I would not deny for a moment that there is deep theological substance and a great deal of insight contained within the 16 chapters of Romans. But often in the effort at treating Romans as a systematic theology, the simplicity of what Paul seeks to do here is completely passed over. Paul's primary goal in writing the book of Romans is to clarify and to solidify the message of the gospel for the church at Rome for the purpose of kingdom advancement. Think about this for a moment. For the first few years of the church's history, the city of Jerusalem was the mission's hub. Virtually all Christians were in and around the city of Jerusalem, and the church was sharing the gospel within Jerusalem and Judea and some parts of Samaria. But in Acts chapter 8, a severe persecution breaks out and the church is scattered. The disciples leave the city of Jerusalem and a great many set up shop in Antioch of Syria to the north of Jerusalem geographically. And the city of Antioch becomes the mission sending outpost. It becomes the hub of the church. It becomes the international mission board of the early Christian experience. In Paul's three journeys he sent out from the church at Antioch, they commission him. They lay hands on him. They send him out. They resource him. They trained him. He and Barnabas trained right there in the church at Antioch. And now they're sending them out to the north and to the west to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel has made its way all the way to the Italian peninsula in the city of Rome. Paul's heart's desire, his ambition as he expresses it in the book of, Rome, uh, the book of Romans is to see the gospel get all the way to the west of Europe, all the way to Spain, virtually to the ends of the earth, at least as far as an apostle Paul could know in a first century context. His ambition is to do what Jesus had called him to do, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But he knows that a missions outpost in Antioch of Syria is an impractical location if he's ever going to reach the ends of the earth. So he writes to the church at Rome to make sure to cement the message of the gospel and the health of the church built upon the message of the gospel in order that further west in the Italian peninsula, there might be a new mission sending outpost with a, with a greater reach than Antioch in Syria. A place that he could use as a launching pad to get the message of the gospel to the very ends of the earth, at least the ends of the earth, as he knew it. And I believe this is what God intends to do with every local church. To make of us, having clarified and solidified the message of the gospel, a mission-sending outpost, the international mission board in each of our communities, Sending faithful believers strategically into the highways and the byways about us. That the message of the gospel might be proclaimed in all the world. So our goal this morning is not unlike that of the Apostle Paul as he wrote the book of Romans. We would clarify, celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ in our midst. That God might be pleased to use each and every one of us sending us out from this mission's outpost. That the nations might know the glories of our King Jesus. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Join me in standing as we read the word of God together. This is what the word of God says. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. The apostle says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. In spite of the beatings, in spite of the imprisonments, in spite of the shipwrecks, in spite of the ridicule, in spite of mistreatment, in spite of being a curse on virtually every city I visit, Paul says, I am unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is after years of mistreatment. This is after years of suffering. He bears in his body the scars of his faithfulness to the gospel. And Paul says again, I am unashamed. Brothers and sisters, we ought be unashamed of the message of the gospel. Unashamedness in our setting is not a great feat. The gospel is still celebrated in most precincts, even as the world turns in this downward spiral around us, there is still some appreciation for the gospel, at least as much as it is understood. But the day may, may well be coming when there's a stronger invitation, a stronger draw toward ashamedness when it comes to the gospel than there is at the present. Paul says, I am unashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he tells us why. Because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and also to the Greek. Paul says the gospel is God's power for salvation. Think of this. This is mysterious, and it ought to be encouraging and greatly refreshing. Packaged in the preaching of the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Somehow, in your words and mine, when we present the gospel, the power of God for salvation is brought to bear. This is an incredible thing. The power of God that parted the Red Sea and allowed that the people of Israel would cross over on dry ground is packaged in the preaching of the gospel. The power of God that would cause the waters of the Jordan River to pile up and create a pathway that Israel might cross into the promised land is packaged in the preaching of the gospel. The power of God that caused the walls of Jericho to come tumbling down that Israel might enjoy victory on that great day is packaged in the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. I don't know how this works. The Bible says here, even in the book of Romans, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is something built into, packaged in, bound up in the preaching of the gospel. As God grants the gift of faith under the hearing of the word of God that unlocks within us a capacity by the power of the Holy Spirit to be and to do as God has called us to be and to do. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. 
which ought to be an encouragement to all of us. I think, I think this is a, a pervasive misconception that our ability to be used for the salvation of someone else, our ability to do something for the church, our ability to do something for the kingdom, our ability to be effective in evangelism, that this hinges on the strength of our personality, the wisdom of our words, the persuasiveness of our speech, the strength of our persona, our charisma, our personality. But brothers and sisters, nothing could be further from the truth. You see this built into the kind of observations that we make. If we, if we, were, if we were looking at a group of teenagers and we were identifying those who have great kingdom potential, we would look for the honor student who plays quarterback and who is handsome and the homecoming queen. Or we would look for the captain of the cheer squad who makes all A's a 30 on the ACT and has a bright worldly future ahead of her. And we would say, oh, what potential. But what I want you to see is that our ability to make a kingdom contribution is dismissive of all of those factors because the power of our ministry is not our athletic ability or our academic ability or how persuasive our personality can be or how grand our circle of influence or how much money we have or how well embraced we are, how likable we are, how photogenic we are. Our capacity for making a kingdom difference rests upon, it hinges upon the power of the message of the gospel that he has entrusted to us. Sometimes the most effective ministers of the gospel are those who stutter and stammer through their presentation. Those who have the least to commend themselves to the world. Because there's a lower likelihood that they're ever going to be so impressed with themselves that they lean into those earthly abilities or weapons of warfare. The likelihood is they're going to leverage their weakness. That in their weakness, he is made strong. They realize, they appreciate, they're able to comprehend and to celebrate that the power of our ministry is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Packaged in this message is the power of God for salvation. Now, brothers and sisters, if we have this great resource, which is the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, would we not avail ourselves of this great power in persuading men and women and boys and girls to believe the truth of the gospel for their salvation? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. We talked last week a, a great deal, in fact, about strategy and methodology. The encouragement there is that we would be intentional about the way we live our life, that we would live on purpose, looking for opportunity to share the message of the gospel as we go. The whole concept of going within the framework of the Great Commission is about living on purpose, being intentional with our time and our relationship in every area of our life. There seems to be an element of strategy in what Paul has described here. The gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. 
In Jesus' ministry, he goes always to the Jews first and then to the Greek. In the Apostle Paul's ministry, he goes in every instance to the Jews first and then to the Greek or the Gentiles. Jesus even instructed his disciples, go only to the lost tribes of, or go only to the house of Israel, although later charging them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The only exception that I'm aware of to this pattern is in Acts chapter 17 when Paul goes to Athens. And there doesn't seem to be a gathering of Jews there. In fact, it's a rather irreligious, from our perspective, city. They're given over to a great deal of idolatry. And Paul goes to Mars Hill, which is what? Mars Hill is a place of religious or spiritual inquiry. It's a place where people would go to gain insight into the demands of the idols. It was a place that people with some spiritual curiosity might go to hear a lecture from a great philosopher that would bear insight into what it meant to serve, to worship those idols. He goes to a place of religious or spiritual interest. That's precisely the pattern that Paul is setting here. As you think strategically about your life personally, you may take note of those who have some degree of spiritual or religious interest, and you might leverage that curiosity in order to share the good news of the gospel with them. I would never suggest that, that all we need in order to be keenly effective is the best strategy. I get weary with that kind of approach. You can have the best strategy in the world on paper, and it won't make any difference whatsoever until you go out into the highways and the byways with the message of the gospel. I get weary of that level of conversation with little to no activity. In recent days, the practice seems to be for armchair missionaries and armchair theologians and armchair evangelists to sit back and to critique in a judgmental and harsh way those who are actively working in the harvest. I don't have any time or place for that either. I'm not suggesting to you that what we do or the way we approach things is even a perfect method, nor would I say that that is true of any of our partners in ministry. But I've always operated according to the principle that the best evangelistic method is the one you will do. It doesn't matter what you think hypothetically unless you've put hand to the plow and began to press into the harvest. Your hypotheticals make little difference whatsoever. The charge of our passage and the charge of this morning's message is that indeed we would put hand to the plow, leveraging the power of the gospel, our relationships, our every day, our every step, that we would think strategically, that we would be on purpose about the way we live our life, declaring, heralding the message of the gospel. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He continues in verse 17, just quickly, for in it, it being the gospel, for in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is kind of an introduction, but in some ways, a very brief summary of everything that follows after in the book of Romans. The concluding statement in verse 17, the righteous will live by faith, is a summary statement of what Paul says in Romans 4 and 5. We're not going to get to that this morning. It doesn't serve our purposes, and we don't have time to deal with that much of our passage. But it's sufficient to note just briefly that what Romans 4 and 5 about is about is the doctrine of justification. 
The teaching that you and I are justified before God, not because of our works, but because of the finished work of Jesus. Believing on Christ, his perfect righteousness is accredited to my account, to your account, so that when we stand before the judgment seat of God, he sees not our misdeeds, but the perfect righteousness of his only son, Jesus. The righteous will live by faith. You don't have the ability or the capacity to live by obedience. You and I live by faith in Christ. But he notes, the first part of verse 17, that not only is the power of God revealed in salvation, but the righteousness of God is revealed in salvation. What does this mean? We know what we know about the righteousness of God because of the gospel of God. If you've ever been inclined to think that God is somehow dismissive of sin, that sin is not a big deal, I would remind you that God nailed his only son, Jesus, to the cross for your sins and for mine. In 1 John 1, 9, the Bible says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That little combination of words that he is faithful and he is just is to say that, again, God has not dismissed our sin out of hand. He has not turned a blind eye but has addressed and dealt with our sin thoroughly and finally on the cross of Calvary. The full penalty for your sin was paid by Jesus. Therefore, God is justified. He is righteous in the faithful way. He forgives and cleanses of all unrighteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed in the message of the gospel. The just will live by faith. In fact, righteousness is said here to be revealed from faith to faith. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure all of what Paul means when he uses that little turn of phrase. His righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. But I think at least a part of what that intends is that if you want to have faith in Jesus, then have faith in Jesus. In other words, faith in Christ begets faith in Christ. Think of Mark chapter 9 and that desperate father who brings his boy to Jesus and says, heal him. Jesus says, do you believe? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Believing in Christ, we are emboldened. Our conviction grows deeper and deeper day by day as we repent of sin and commit ourselves to faith in Christ. With each day that passes, there is a strengthening, a cementing of our faith in Christ. Faith is moving. Righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. The message of the gospel is moving from faith to faith. As you give it. others. So let's talk about that message for a moment. The power of the gospel is addressed in verses 16 and 17, but a word should be said about the message of the gospel as well. I think 
This is where we go astray often in our efforts at sharing the message with others. We make assumptions about the gospel. We make assumptions about what is known or understood about the message of the gospel. I shared this illustration in this pulpit before, I'm certain, but for its shock value and the way it illustrates this point, I'm going to reference it again. There's a story in Christianity Today years ago now, this New York church planner, and uh, he's preaching on a Sunday morning and there's a visitor. And when you're a church planner in New York and you have a visitor, it's quite the day, right? He seems to be engaged, he's captivated with the sermon, he's leaning in and the pastor finds himself in conversation with this visitor in the vestibule of the church after the service. And they're back and forth and they're sharing in pleasant conversation and the church planner is thinking to himself, he'll be back in the future, perhaps there'll come a moment of faith commitment in his life and as the church planner and the visitor began to part and go their separate ways, the pastor returning into the sanctuary and the guest exiting the front door or the back door, whatever door you want to call it, of the church. He looks back toward the front of the church. There's a big picture hanging of Jesus on the cross. And the guest says to the church planner, oh, by the way, who's the guy on the plus sign? Now, you might be inclined to think that that level of ignorance with regards to the gospel is unique to New York, but you would be wrong in your assessment. There are people within an arm's reach of this church who are just as ignorant with regards to the message of the gospel, who only know the name of Jesus as a byword. For the most part, our approach over the last 50 years to presenting the gospel has been to invite people to ABC, admit that they're a sinner, believe in Jesus, and confess that he is Lord. That's been the prototypical vacation Bible school gospel presentation. That's been the approach to gospel presentation put forward in many tracks and in most conversation, much conversation rather, over the past 50 years. And those are all appropriate responses to the gospel. If you're going to be born again, you must admit that you are a sinner. You must believe in Jesus. You must confess that he is Lord. But those are mere responses to the message of the gospel. That is not in and of itself the message of the gospel, wherein lies the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. If you'll think back across the book of Acts, they never tell the disciples, stop preaching, stop teaching. They always say, stop teaching either in Jesus' name or forget about the business of the resurrection. They realize that there's power, there's power in the preaching of those disciples that doesn't belong to the disciples. In fact, they regard them as uneducated and untrained men. There was nothing impressive about Peter, James, and John. But there was something about the substance of their message. There was something about Jesus' name. There was something about the resurrection. There is something about the gospel that touches and turns the hearts of men. If I could just briefly, this is the gospel. That God has loved us so much that he sent his only son, that Jesus, God's only son, would come down from heaven, clothe himself in flesh, and walk in our midst. Without sin, every righteous requirement God has ever made for us in this book, Jesus fulfilled in absolute perfection. And in spite of his perfection, was nailed to the cross. 
Not for his sin, but for my sin. And for your sin, Jesus became on the cross our substitute. They took his dead body down and they buried him in a grave. But on the third day, Jesus rose again. And he revealed himself to the disciples to say, here I am in all of my resurrection glory. And he ascended to the right hand of God. And he invites us, even this morning, to admit that we are sinners. To believe on him as the only begotten son of God. That he indeed was raised from the dead. To repent of all our sin. And to confess that he indeed is Lord. That is the message of the gospel. And it's the power of God for salvation for every person who believes. Now, what we've been called to do in the Great Commission, which was the focus of our time together last week, is to share that message far and wide. So let's talk about that for a moment, sharing the message of the gospel. You have two great tools in your arsenal for sharing the message of the gospel, the testimony of your experience and the testimony of God's word. We see both of those used in the New Testament to call people to faith in Christ. There are times when Paul stands behind something of a pulpit in the Jewish synagogue, scroll unrolled before him, and he gives an exposition of the passage and explains its connection to Jesus, how all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And then there are times when Paul finds himself in the public square and he engages with those around him on the basis of his own experience at coming to know faith in Christ. You, you can utilize, you should wield both of these weapons in your effort at sharing the message of the gospel with those around you. Perhaps the easiest, the quickest, the most natural is to speak of your personal experience. Pastors Jason and Trey in evangelism training here talk about developing a 20-second testimony. The ability to speak of your conversion experience in 20 seconds or less. One or two words about who you were before you came to know God. One or two words about how God intervened in your life through his son Jesus. And one or two words about who you've been since God changed your life by the power of the gospel. It seems like it would be a difficult thing to reduce all of that experience down to just a 20-second testimony, but it's a fruitful experience. You ought to make it your practice today. Maybe Sunday lunch with the family is about developing our 20-second testimonies. It gives you a shorthand for giving expression to what God has done so remarkably in your life personally. We talked about a 20-second testimony already in our passage. The man said, I was blind. Jesus touched me, now I see, deal with it. That's the 20-second testimony pattern for you. Who were you? What did God do? Who are you now? Invite them to trust and to believe. That's the 20-second testimony. It's great for gas station conversation. It's great for standing out at the pump. It's great for an exchange at the counter. It's great for standing in a line at Walmart. It's even good for the self-checkout when you're moving quickly through the grocery. It's a good way of beginning conversation about the need to trust and believe the gospel for the salvation of one's soul. My personal conviction is that the testimony of the word is a more powerful, it is a more forceful way of giving expression 
to the truth of the gospel. In fact, I would suggest that if you have opportunity to share your personal testimony and there's interest expressed, it's a good thing to invite the Bible into that conversation. Most of the time, in the last year, most of the time, when talking with people about the gospel and their need for salvation, there is a drifting toward their internal sense of what is right and wrong, or even a drifting toward what is culturally acceptable. I cannot think of two more irrelevant words when it comes to the matter of God and the gift of salvation than I think. It doesn't matter what the pastor thinks about salvation. It doesn't frankly matter what you think about salvation. What matters is what a source of authority external to ourselves has said about the character of God and his goodness as displayed in the gospel. And we find that authority in the Bible. It is a good thing to be able to point those around you toward the authority of the scripture lest their faith be in you and your special insight and not the God of the Bible. So what I'd like us to do in the next few minutes here is to walk through a few verses that can be fruitful, helpful to you in your efforts at communicating the gospel. And I would advise you even to just turn the Bible around in your conversation and say, would you mind reading this verse and can we have a brief conversation about what it might mean for you and for me. Give them the opportunity to read the passage for themselves. The word of God is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It does not return void. Give them the opportunity to read, to comprehend, to internalize what that particular verse is saying. And the first verse I want us to look at is Romans 3.23. And I, I want to help you with something as you're turning there and, and provide a few pointers along the way. I'm going to give you four verses in the time that we have together to use in evangelism. And in just that statement, if I've kept you until now, for some of you, I've, I just lost you. Four verses. If you got one verse, I might be good with that. Four verses, I'm out of here. What I want you to see is that you don't need a seminary degree to, to tell people about Jesus. Or even a seminary degree to tell people about Jesus from the Bible. There are some little helpful techniques and maneuvers that you can use along the way. When God saved me, I say this all the time, I know anything about the Bible. In, in, in the early days of coming to walk with Jesus, I got invited to teach the youngest royal ambassadors class on a Wednesday night and I showed up and I taught them from the book of Job. That's how much I knew about the Bible. Some poor little kid said, Wayne, I think that's Job. And it was. But it looks like Job, right? You know? There are all these things that we don't let us in. At, and and we, we, we need to have an orientation about these mysterious Christian elements, right? Looks like Job to me. Now, I found this book. I wanted to be faithful in sharing the gospel. I found this book called Share Jesus Without Fear. And some of the little encouragements and tips throughout the book are still benefiting me today in sharing the gospel. For instance, he said, you don't need to memorize all these verses that we use in the presentation. All you need to do is go to the first verse, Romans 3, 23. And beside that verse, write the next verse that you're going to turn to, Romans 6, 23. 
And beside Romans 6.23, write Romans 5.8. And beside Romans 5.8, write Romans 10.9. And I thought that was the most ingenious thing I had ever heard in my life. It was more impressive to me than any advancement in technology that I had ever been exposed to. That in a brief sentence, I had been given the keys to the ability to show someone else what the Bible says about the gift of salvation without extensive training or long hours of study and memorization. Now, long hours of study and memorization and intensive training can be good things, but I don't need you as the body of Christ waiting around here for years to get extensive training to go share the good news of the gospel. The world is perishing. Today is the day of salvation. Within your circle of influence, there are those who need to hear the message of the gospel for the salvation of their soul. So beside Romans 3.23, just write Romans 6.23. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is a contentious issue, believe it or not. There's this great chasm that exists between conservatism and liberalism in our culture now. I don't mean politically necessarily, although that part of our culture has been impacted by this. I mean, socially and ethically or morally and politically and even religiously, the great chasm that exists between conservative and liberal comes down to how we understand the concept of sin. You and I don't have this inner spark of good waiting for an opportunity to express itself. We are fundamentally sinful people. Locked in a closet, free from any imposition by environmental conditions, you and I will come out cussing and stealing and killing. That's who we are by nature. We're born as sinners by nature and by choice. All have sinned. Sometimes recently I hear this verse used as though it's some kind of excuse. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In the same way that we say, well, you know, no one is perfect. You know, no one is perfect. But that doesn't mean that God is somehow lowering the bar or lowering the standard for us. It doesn't mean that we all get off because all have sinned. It doesn't mean that we're overwhelming the justice system of God because we all jump the turnstile. It just means that we are all damned. That's what this verse means. That apart from the intervention of God in our life by the power of the gospel, we will perish in a sinner's hell. That's our fate. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. The Bible says in Romans 6 and 23 that the penalty for our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You'll run into those who will say, you know, I'm not as big a sinner as this person or that person. And often you'll find that they're right. <laughs> they're, they're not as big a sinner as this person or that person. And Sometimes they'll appeal to people that they know to be Christians or people who are a part of the church, and they'll say, well, I'm not as bad as them, and sometimes they'll be right. The problem is not the severity of our sin. The problem is the existence of our sin, a single sin. They'll regard themselves as not having done things that were too bad. The problem is you've sinned against God. If you attack me, for instance, after the service, which some of you may be impressed to do, you will probably be charged with a misdemeanor. 
if, however, the president were to visit Hernando and you attack the president, they will put you underneath Leavenworth Penitentiary and you will never get out. The severity of your punishment is determined not by the offense itself, by the one against whom you have offended. The problem of your sin is not that you have sinned against your friend or sinned against your neighbor. The problem of your sin is that you have sinned against a holy God. And the penalty for that sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is a great opportunity, a great place to talk about the message of the gospel, how God has intervened in human history and how Jesus has become our substitute on the cross, how he takes our sin on himself and how by faith his righteousness is conveyed or transferred to our account. He's raised again on the third day and because of his resurrection life, we can know resurrection power. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The next verse is Romans 5 and verse 8, which says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm finding more and more that if I ask a person, are you a Christian? They'll say, well, I'm trying. Or if you ask a person, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? They will say, I hope so. When a person responds to a question like that with an effort-centered answer, I'm trying, maybe I hope, it's a good indication to me that they're far from God because personal effort is in direct conflict with the promise of the gospel. Even for those of you who are believers, there remains a sediment of pride in the heart of virtually every man, convincing him or her that somehow, some way, they're making their own contribution to the salvation we have in Jesus, and nothing could be further from the truth. Your salvation hinges on works, works of righteousness, but they're not your works, they're the works of Jesus Christ, long since performed, settled, sealed forever in his body, in his blood, at a Roman cross and an empty grave, our salvation story was written. You know, there is a sense in which when someone asks us when we were saved, I could say to you, on June the 22nd of 2001 at 235 on North Jackson Street, just outside the city limits of Starkville. Or I could say to you 2,000 years ago on an old Roman cross or at a garden in a nondescript place outside the city of Jerusalem. As a stone rolled away, my Savior walked forth in great victory. Brothers and sisters, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and that alone is the source of our salvation. The last verse in this series of verses, we call this the Roman road, and we're trying to be consistent at teaching a, a single method. You, you can do four spiritual laws. You can do evangelism explosion. You can do three circles. You can do faith. You can do grow. I don't care how you share the gospel. I just want you to share the gospel. And again, the best method for sharing the gospel is the one that you will do. But for the sake of conversation and consistency, we're using the Roman, Roman road within all of our training areas and conversation from the pulpit. The last verse is Romans 10 and verse number nine. Paul does something genius here. Not only does he package an appropriate response to the message of the gospel, he counters 
misconceptions and misunderstandings about the gospel in a single verse. This is what he says. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you will be saved. I don't know that many people give thought to what's being described, the detail, the precision with which Paul speaks in this particular verse. Several years ago now, we had the big dust-up controversy, a long-standing conversation about sinner's prayer. I don't necessarily have an issue with someone leading another person in a prayer, a sinner's prayer, helping, encouraging people as they respond to the message of the gospel. I see little harm in that. But I do see harm in using a sinner's prayer model in such a way as to suggest or at least create the opportunity for the perception that our salvation is something akin to an incantation that results from the right series of words being repeated one after the other. Paul addresses that in this verse. Did you notice it? We are saved when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, but only in so much as that confession is born forth from a heart that sincerely believes the message of the gospel. Jesus is Lord is not some incantation we dangle over our life and trust that God will save us against the day of judgment. There's a little toying around with the language of Jesus' name in the book of Acts. It never ends well for those that seek to play games with Jesus. A demon said, Paul I know, and Jesus I know, but who are you? And he leaves embarrassed and bruised from that encounter. The sinner's prayer, your response, however you understand it, is not an incantation. But the sincere expression of our heart. That in fact we have believed that Jesus Christ is God's only son. That he lived without sin. That he died in our place. That he was raised again on the third day. And it's the genuine desire of our heart to make ourselves subject to the king of every king and the Lord of every Lord. This is our response to the message of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The message of the gospel is the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. It's incumbent upon us that we would share this message far and wide. This is what God's called us to do. I, I notice in my own heart a, an ability to see, to observe lostness on a mission trip in a way that I usually neglect at home under the ordinary circumstances of life. Those of you who've traveled and participated in such activities have observed the same in all likelihood in your own experience. It's easy to observe lostness when people are filing in and out of a Buddhist wat or a Hindu temple or a Muslim mosque. It's, it's camouflaged in the lives of people who go about life much the way we go about life. But the hard reality is that God has not called us to live on a mission trip. God has called us to live on mission. And for some of us, this must begin by praying that he would give us eyes to see the vast lostness 
and the deep darkness that exists even within our families and our friend groups and our town and our county and the greater Mid-South and the America that we have come to love and to cherish. In your life, there are those who apart from the intervention of God will perish in a sinner's hell. And you bear forth the message of the gospel that has packaged in it the power of the gospel for their very salvation. May he find us faithful in casting the light of the gospel, living as salt and life and light. And may he make of Longview Point a missions outpost where the gospel has been solidified, where the gospel has been made clear, that bold gospel proclamation might be made far and wide, near and far, across the street and around the world. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and for its power. I pray that you would make us faithful evangelists, that you would burden our hearts for the lost around us. God, I pray for those who are here today as unbelievers who don't know you, that the plain nature of the gospel this morning would, would bear fruit, you would compel them to believe by the power of your spirit. Open their hearts, God. I pray for that strange category of Christian, that group that's never shared their faith in Christ. I pray that today they've found the tools, the courage, the encouragement to go and to share of what you've done in their life. I pray for those, God, who share but share infrequently, that, that they found encouragement to share all the more. God, I pray for those who share with every waking hour, Lord, they're earnestly seeking someone with whom they might share. God, would you anoint them by the power of your Holy Spirit that there might be scores of people who come to faith in Christ through their faithful witness. God, I ask that our response to the reading and preaching of your word, the instruction that we've undergone this morning, Lord, would bring you great glory and honor in the moments ahead. You would seek and save and draw near, embolden and empower. May your son receive all the praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.